Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119, verse 113. 113 to 120 this morning. Psalm 119, and we will pick up in verse 113 this morning. There the word of Christ says this, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all of the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to teach us the fear of the Lord. That just as the prophet David trembled, Lord, for fear of you, he was afraid of your judgments. So, Father, we pray that today we would tremble in your presence and that we too would be afraid of your judgments. Lord, for who among the gods is like you? Who is like you, Lord, majestic in holiness? Lord, there is no one like you. And yet, Lord, we are drawing near to our God. Lord, drawing near to the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And so, Father, we pray that we would not do so in a flippant way. Lord, that when we open your word, we would not do so in a way uh, that is casual and cavalier. But rather, Lord, we would see that when we read from your word and when we hear from your word, Lord, the God of the universe is speaking to us. And so we must take very seriously what he says and stand in fear of him. So, Lord, grant to us the fear of the Lord today, Lord, that we might have a heart of wisdom. And, Lord, teach us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the aspects of walking in the fear of the Lord is knowing how to respond in a biblical way to whatever we encounter in this life. But every day we face many situations, many scenarios, many people. We hear different thoughts, ideas, opinions, advice from many different sources in this life. And we must be able to process all of these things, go through life, and respond in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. There are some things that we must accept, that we must receive, that we must love. Those things that conform to the Word of God. And then there are other things that we must resist. We have to reject them and we have to hate them. The Christian life consists of both love and hate. Love of what is good and true, and hate of what is evil and false. This is the way it must be in the Christian life. We must have both biblical love and biblical hate. Even in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there the prophet describes for us this contrast that must be true of us in life. That there are times and seasons for one thing, in times and seasons for the opposite or that which is contrary. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, 
a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This is as the prophet David describes in our passage today. There is a time to hate and there is a time to love. And we have to discern what is appropriate according to the situation. He wants nothing to do with sin, but he wants everything to do with the word of God and those things that are pleasing in the sight of God. And this is the way that we must be. We must love God. We must love his word. We must love his people. And we must hate the world, the flesh, the devil, and all sin. Everything that is contrary to the will of God, we must reject it, detest it, and hate even the garment that is stained by the flesh. So let's look at Psalm 119. We'll pick up in verse 113. Here you see this contrast. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. Here the prophet David expresses his hatred for those who are double-minded. A double-minded man being unstable in all of his ways. A double-minded man is duplicitous. He has a duplicitous mind that wants one foot in the church and one foot in the world. A double-minded man wants to go to church on Sunday and then live like the world throughout the rest of the week. This is because he does not hate sin. He still clings to his sin and his mind is not resolute in his hatred for sin. James, the apostle, describes this in James chapter 1 in speaking here to the church that this was the problem with the church, that they were being double-minded in their approach to the Christian life. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here, he's saying that when we lack wisdom, we need to pray to God. We need to pray to God and ask God to give us wisdom because he is the source, the fount of all wisdom, and God will graciously give wisdom to those who lack it, but only if they ask in faith, right? Prayers to God should be acts of faith in God. Yet here, the prayer comes with doubting of God. How can one possess doubt and faith at the same time? How can one do an act that is based on faith and yet be filled with doubt in the very act of prayer? And this is why he says they're double-minded. This is a double-minded man, one who prays with doubt. He's unstable in all of his ways, and he says we shouldn't be like that. Also in James chapter 4, James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. There he tells them, 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're double-minded in the way that you're approaching life, in the way that you're serving God. You are a double-minded man, saying that you can serve God while still having hands filled with sin, having hearts that are filled with sin. So what needs to be cleansed out? What needs to be purified in the life of the people? It is their sin. Their sin must be rejected. They're not taking sin seriously. They're compromising with sin and thus proving to be double-minded. An example of this would be in 1 Kings 18.21, when the prophet Elijah rebuked the people of Israel because they were worshiping both God and Baal. He says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. The people were saying, we can worship the Lord and we can worship Baal. We can serve both gods. We can make friends with those who worship the Lord and we can make friends with those who worship Baal. Our sons and daughters can marry one or the other. We can go back and forth between God and the world, between the true God and between a false God. Here, they're being double-minded, double-minded people limping between two opinions. And he says, quit doing this. Why are you doing this? Why are you hesitating between these two? Either serve one or serve the other. Well, there are many who believe and live this way, who are double-minded. Well, what does the prophet David think of them? He says, I hate those who are double-minded. Now notice here, and look in your Bibles. I'm not making any of this up. I'm not taking this out of context. Psalm 119, 113 says, I hate those who are double-minded. Those, it is personal. He's talking about the people. He's talking about the sinners, those who are committing the sin of double-mindedness. He does not merely hate the sin. Certainly, he does hate the sin, but he also here hates those who commit the sin. He says, I hate those who are double-minded. Now, I point this out because it is commonly taught and believed, and perhaps you have heard this yourself, that we are to hate the sin, but love the sinner. Hate the sin and love the sinner. And certainly there is an element of truth in that statement. For Jesus himself told us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. And we should understand and practice what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 44. However, today, many teach that we should only love our enemies that we should never have hatred for the wicked, exclusively love and never hate. And if we do have hatred, then we are sinning and we are not like Christ. Hate the sin, they will say, but love the sinner. And by love of the sinner, they mean shower them with hugs, with compliments, with kisses, with handshakes, with smiles, kind words, gifts, pour 40 pounds of sugar over their head, give them lollipops and candy and all sorts of things like this, but don't ever confront their sin. Just love them, right? We just have to love them. Love them in, and if you love them enough, eventually you're going to win them to Christ. We're going to win them with love. They'll even say, well, yes, the Bible does talk about hate, but it also talks about love, right? It also talks about love, and we got to love. But their idea of love excludes any notion of hate. But here in Psalm 119, 113, the prophet David clearly says, I hate 
those who are double-minded. So whatever Matthew 5.44 means, love your enemies, and whatever Psalm 119.113 means, they cannot contradict. There must be a place to love our enemies and also a place to hate those who are double-minded. And if our faith and if our practice of righteousness does not include Psalm 119.113, then we are sinning against God because we're not practicing what is taught in the Bible. We're not following the pattern of the prophets and the apostles led by the Holy Spirit of God. We are refusing to practice this, and that would itself be a sin. We have to hate the double-minded. The prophet David is not sinning when he says, I hate those who are double-minded. The Bible expects us to hate the sinner. Now, we have to understand what that means. What does it mean to hate the sinner? Well, it means that we reject their sin. We want nothing to do with their sin. We refuse to participate in his sin, and we confront his sin when it pops up in our presence with the truthful, hard words of the Bible, and we speak to him about his eternal destiny in hell if he will not repent. Because God will not merely throw sin into the lake of fire. God will throw sinners into the lake of fire. Satan, the demons, and wicked men will be cast into the lake of fire. And even in the New Testament, we are taught to hate. We are taught to hate sin and the sinner even in the New Testament, even if the sinner is one of our close relatives. Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, verses 25 to 27. Many would say, well, it's not Christ-like to do this. Well, what do you do with this then? Because Jesus Christ himself teaches this in Luke 14, 25 to 27. He's teaching the same thing as the prophet David in verse 113. Luke 14, 25 says, now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here, we must hate sin without partiality. We cannot show partiality in our hatred of sin. If sin is found in the father, then he says you must hate your father. If the sin is found in the mother, then you must hate the mother. If the wife, if the children, if the brother, if the sister, then we have to hate them. We have to hate those. We have to hate the sin that is in them. And he says, yes, even your own life, even in us, whatever is sinful, we have to hate we must detest whatever is double-minded in us. We must reject it, get rid of it, and seek to overcome it. We have to cut it off. And didn't the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, 21 say, So I find it to be a law when I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. Well, what is he speaking of there except double-mindedness? Is that not the very essence of double-mindedness? I want to do right, but evil lies close at hand. Right? I have this dual 
fight, this fight that is going on within me. I want to do what is good and right in the sight of God, but then I have another law working within my body that's waging war against this good law that makes me want to be a slave to sin. It makes me want to commit sins against God. Well, this is double-mindedness. And whenever double-mindedness shows up in our own life, we have to hate it. We have to reject it. We have to repent of it and have nothing to do with it. We cannot associate with sin. We cannot agree with sin. We cannot excuse sin, whether it be our own sin, whether it be the sin of our father, the sin of our mother, the sin of our wife, the sin of our children, the sin of our brother, the sin of our sister, the sin of our friends, the sin of our countrymen. Whatever sin there is, we must hate it and we must reject it and want nothing to do with sin. That's what he means by hate. By hate, he does not mean that we go out and punch sinners in the face. He doesn't mean that we drive them off the road and try to make them have wrecks. He doesn't mean that we go and scream at them and curse them in the face in that way. Of course, he does not mean that. And he doesn't mean that if we see a sinner, if we see someone who's double-minded in a house that's burning down, that we let it burn down on top of them and let them and their families perish, even though we could have saved them. Of course, we're not supposed to do that. In that situation... That's Matthew 5, Love your enemy. Then you should go help them. Then you should assist them. But after you assist them, what should you do? You should tell them you almost died in that burning fire and you're a double-minded man and there's a greater fire that's coming. That's the fires of hell. And if you don't repent, then that's where you're going to go. And we have to preach the gospel to them and tell them and warn them of these things. Hate means to detest and reject their sin. Don't follow them, don't listen to them, right? Don't take their advice, don't practice what they practice. Reject and speak against their sin. He says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. He loves the law of God because God's law is not double-minded. God's law is singular in the righteousness that it, teach, that it teaches. This is why he loves the law of God. Is God's law ever going to lead us astray? Is it ever going to teach to us dual principles, right? Telling us on one page to do what's good and the next page to do what's evil. The law of God is never going to do this, but will always teach to us the will of God in truth and in righteousness. And it is always good. And this is why he loves the law of God. The law is holy and righteous and good, according to Romans chapter 7. The Bible will never on one page teach against sin and then the next page promote that sin. The Bible will not say in chapter 1 that adultery is a sin and in chapter 2 adultery is virtuous. It's not going to do that. The wicked, that's what they do. They're double-minded. They hate the law of God because it confronts their sin. But we should love the law of God because it teaches us to discern between good and evil to discern between sin and righteousness, and it establishes us in the way of righteousness. And so we should love it and seek to keep it with all of our heart. Verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for you, Lord. Here, God is his hiding place. God is a shield for him. God is a refuge from him, from danger. And the Bible speaks of God using these illustrations, that God is a source of protection for his people. Right. Psalm 46. 
Psalm 46 is a psalm that is teaching this truth, that God is the refuge of his people. Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. God is our refuge and strength. God is a very present help in times of trouble. God knows how to protect his people from all harm, both in this life and in the life to come. In this life, though his people are afflicted, though they are beset with many dangers, God will not let them stumble and fall to their ruin and destruction. He upholds them. He protects them. He watches over them. He preserves them from falling to their ruin. And then in the life to come, God will protect us from the fires of hell. God will keep us from going into the judgment of God and being found wanting and being cast into the lake of fire. God's people will safely pass through the fire of God's judgment because their life is hidden in Christ. He is their refuge. He is a hiding place for them that protects them and preserves them from the judgment that will come on the ungodly. Now, in our natural state, before our salvation, our life was in jeopardy. We were lost. We were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We were on a broad road that leads to destruction. We were exposed to the judgment of God because of the guilt of our sin. But now we are safe and secure in the arms of God. And nothing can touch us and nothing can harm the children of God. Jesus says in John 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. He gives eternal life and they will never perish. If he has given eternal life to us, then what is there that can harm us? What evil can come upon us if we have the love of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can be against us if we are hidden in Christ. Verse 115. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Here, he wants evildoers to depart from him so that he might observe God's commandments. He does not want to be surrounded by wicked men, by those who are practicing sin, because he knows that if he's around those people, they're going to be a detriment to his godliness. Are evildoers going to encourage us to live a righteous life? Are they going to strengthen us in our faith? Are they going to spur us on to love and good deeds? Of course not, but the contrary is true. They're going to want us to practice sin with them. They're going to encourage us to break the commandments of God. So he says, get away from me. Depart from me, you evildoers. 
I want to obey my God, and I know that you want to tempt me to sin against my God, to transgress his commandments, so I don't want to be around you. That's what he is saying. Now again, like we said earlier, this is the opposite of what is being taught today, of what is being taught and practiced in many churches today. We are told we need to be friends with sinners. We need to go to sinful places where sinners are and spend much time with sinful people so that we can convert them to Christianity. Now, again, if they're willing to listen to the gospel, then yes, we should preach the gospel to them. If they are willing to study the Bible, then yes, we should study the Bible with them. But if they will not listen and they have no interest in the things of God, but they just want to have a good time, then why would we want to be with them? Then we should depart from them and tell them to depart from us and have nothing to do with them. Don't be around them. If they are practicing sin, then they're going to be a bad influence on us, and they will hinder us from living a godly life. If we go to the bars with them, will we not be tempted to drunkenness? If we go to the clubs with them, will we not be tempted to commit immorality with the kind of men and women who go to those places, with the fornicators and the adulteresses? How is that going to help? How are we going to win them and convert them in a bar when they're drunk? How can you preach the gospel to a drunk man? How are you going to preach the gospel to them in a nightclub where the lights are dark and the music is so loud that you can't even hear the person sitting next to you? In what way are you able to have any fruitful ministry in that place. It's impossible. And yet there are churches who actually encourage their members, even the young people, to go to these places to do evangelism. But how can this be? If they are practicing sin, if they are in establishments of sin, then they're going to have a negative influence on us. So we should depart from them, get away from them, be like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. He fled from her presence because he did not want to commit sin against God. This is the same as the prophet David. He wants to live a godly life. He has a great desire to observe God's commandments, and he knows that evildoers will not help him in this purpose, but they're going to hinder them. So he doesn't want to be around them. Again, we have to take this seriously. We have to take sin seriously. We have to take the appeal of the flesh seriously. We cannot think that godless people are not going to influence us, that we are so mature, we are so advanced in the Christian life, that that we can spend time with them and they're not going to cause me to stumble, that I can stand because I'm very, very advanced and I'm very mature, I'm a very mature Christian, so I can be around them, I can associate with them, and I'm going to be okay. The Bible says that this is very arrogant for us to think this way. And if we do think that way, what is quickly going to happen? We're soon going to fall. Those who are puffed up with pride will soon fall to their own ruin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. 
nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There he says, if anyone thinks he stands, this is the person who believes he can be close to evildoers. I can have close friendship with evildoers. I can spend much time with evildoers. I can go with them to these places and I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to be tempted. I'm going to be able to stand in those situations because I'm very strong, right? I'm very mature. I'm not going to be influenced by them. He thinks that he stands, but he needs to take heed because what's about to happen to him? He's going to fall. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. And how do we keep from falling into idolatry according to verse 14? You flee from it. Flee from it. That's the same as our passage here. Depart from me. Get away from me. Run away from them because I don't want to practice your sin. And here... As in Psalm 119, it, what is the way of escape? The way of escape from being influenced by evildoers is to flee from them, depart from them, get away from them. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do we want their bad company corrupting our good morals? No. Well, if we're with them, then what are they going to do? They will corrupt us. Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So we cannot be filled with pride and think that we can be around evildoers and withstand the temptation. This is not the way of the Christian life, but rather we need to flee from them. And there are examples in the Bible such as Exodus chapter 32, where Aaron, who was a godly man, Aaron was a godly, righteous man, yet Aaron was influenced by the people to make the golden calf. Aaron did not instigate this idolatry. The evil people did, but Aaron did not withstand it. Aaron went along with the people, and they were a stumbling block to him and led him to sin. Also, in Nehemiah chapter 13, in Nehemiah chapter 13, here, when Nehemiah is rebuking the people for this very sin of associating with evildoers, he brings up the example of Solomon. And what happened to Solomon because of the influence of his evil wives? Nehemiah 13 verse 23. In those days, I saw also that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them were able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them, and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God. This is the same as hate the double-minded. That's what he's doing here. When he contends with them, he curses them. He's not cursing them in an evil way. He's cursing them in a righteous way, pronouncing a curse of God upon them. Struck some of them, pulled out their hair, made them swear by God that you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Right? If they give their daughters to their sons, then what's going to happen? Are their daughters going to make their sons righteous? No, their sons are going to make their daughters immoral. And what if they give their sons to their daughters? Are their sons going to make their daughters righteous? No, it's going to be the opposite effect. And then verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Even Solomon And here, the obvious conclusion is, none of you are Solomon. None of you are as wise as Solomon. None of you are as great as Solomon. None of you are as righteous as Solomon. Yet even Solomon, with all of his wisdom, even he was influenced by these foreign women, and even they were a stumbling block to him and led him into sin. And if you're not as great as Solomon, and you're doing the same thing he did, then what is obviously going to happen? The exact same thing. So we cannot think that we can play loose with sin. That we can associate and be around those who are practicing sin. Right? Again, we're not talking about those who want to study the Bible. We're not talking about those who are willing to listen and where we have an opportunity to preach the gospel. But we're just talking about people who have no care for these things. They just want to have a good time. They're just living it up. Don't have anything to do with him because they will tempt us to sin. Verse 116 to 117 says, Sustain me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. Here, he wants God to sustain him and to uphold him. He knows that if he's left on his own, without the grace of God, without the strength of God, then he cannot live a godly life. But he wants to live a godly life. But he knows apart from the grace of God, it is impossible. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I am him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. No righteousness, no faith, no good works, no obedience to God, no service of God. Apart from Christ, we cannot do anything of any good for the Lord. Well, this is what we want to do, though. We want to do those things, so how will we do it? God has to sustain us. God must uphold us. But he also knows here that there is a way that God does this. There is a means that God uses to uphold his people. And what is the source, what is the means that God uses to uphold his people? The word of God. 
Uphold me, he says, according to your word. Sustain me according to your word. He is praying for God to sustain him, but also giving himself to the word of God because he knows that God will not sustain him apart from his word. If we are praying for God to sustain us, but then we're not reading the Bible, hearing the word, memorizing the word, then it's not going to happen. We don't have true faith. That is the person who's praying, but he has doubts because he's not doing the very thing the Bible tells him to do in order for him to be upheld and in order for him to be sustained. When we are praying for God to do this, it must be accompanied with going to the word of God. There are many people who say they want to live the Christian life, who say they want to be faithful to Christ, but then they do not pray to God for help and they do not read their Bibles. They will neglect the word of God. They're not reading it throughout the week. They will neglect to come to church to hear the word of God taught. But they say, oh, I, I want to be faithful to Christ. I want to be sustained. I want to persevere to the very end. Well, what is this? You're saying that, but your actions betray the reality. You don't really mean it. The average Christian, he doesn't even read his Bible. He has no desire for the word of God. How can someone claim to be a Christian and yet have no hunger, no thirst, no desire, no heart for the Word of God? It is impossible. It's a contradiction for someone to claim to be a Christian and yet not have a desire for the Word of God. So he wants to be sustained according to the Word of God. Also, he says, he does not want to be ashamed of his hope. He wants no shame because of his love of God and his love of the word of God. He wants to live a godly life, and he does not want to be ashamed of the hope of eternal life that is in him. This is what motivates the righteous to live a godly life. It is the hope of eternal life, of life with God. And the wicked will mock God's children because of the hope of eternal life. It is our hope for this life that leads God's people to say no to sin, and yes to righteousness, to not live for this present world, but to live for the world to come. Well, the godless will see this, and they're going to mock us. They're going to heap shame upon God's children. It says in Job 12, verse 4, I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God, and he answered him, the just and blameless man is a joke. They mock him, they ridicule him, they make fun of him. He is the butt of all of their jokes. This is what he has become. He doesn't want to be ashamed of his hope whenever he receives mocking and ridicule from wicked men. So he's asking for God to protect him. Protect me from their taunts. Protect me from the ridicule of wicked men. And if I do have to endure these things, don't let their mocking cause me to turn away from you. Cause me to be ashamed of you. Now, ultimately, for us to do this, we, should, we have to have the fear of God. Fear of being ashamed in the presence of Christ will cause us to not be afraid of being ashamed in the presence of men. We must have that fear. We should not fear the shame of men, but the shame of Christ. That's the fear that we should have. To hear Jesus say to us, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. That is to be ashamed in the presence of Christ. We don't want to hear that on the day of judgment. 
I don't want Christ to be ashamed of me, so I should not worry and fret over men when they mock me because of Christ, when they seek to put me to shame. Verse 118 and 119 says, You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all of the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. In 1 Peter 4.18, it says, If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Well, the prophet tells us right here. He describes the outcome of the ungodly. He says they are rejected by God and they will be removed from the earth like dross. He knows what God has determined to do to those who wander from his commandments. They will be removed by the Lord and only the righteous will remain. On the day of judgment, God will make a clear separation between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are like gold and silver They will pass through the fire of God's judgment and they will be purified. They will be refined and they will come out sparkling, shining as pure gold and silver. The wicked who are like dross will be consumed by the fire of God's judgment. They will be stripped away, they will be removed and they will be cast and discarded. They will have no place in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, but their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist taught this. This was why he was urging the people to repent of their sins because of this day of judgment that was coming. Matthew 3, verses 7 to 12. Matthew 3, 7 to 12. says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than me, mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with un quenchable fire. There, using a different illustration of wheat and chaff. Here it's gold and dross. There is wheat and chaff. The wheat will be gathered into his barn. That they will go to heaven with the Lord, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire, with eternal fire in the lake of fire. As Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, if this is the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone for all eternity, then should we not be diligent to make our calling and our election sure? 
when we see what will happen to them on the day of judgment, that God has rejected them, that God calls them dross, that God will remove them from the earth, then we should say, right, out of love for our own soul, I don't want to be like them. I don't want to go to hell with them. I don't want to be accounted with the wicked on the day of judgment. I don't want to be chaff. I don't want to be dross. I don't want to be a goat. So I better examine my life and make sure that I am in the faith. I need to examine my fruit and I need to talk to my friends who are godly, who are trustworthy, who are sincere and ask them as well. What do you see in my life? Does my life correspond with that of a child of God? Does my life match up to what I say I believe? Does it match up with the word of God? Is the fruit in my life consistent with those who are children of God, those who are true possessors of salvation? Don't we need to be doing this? Aren't we supposed to do this constantly throughout our Christian life? We are not supposed to be presumptuous and just say, oh, it's already all taken care of. Now I can just go live however I want. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about it. I have my spot in heaven reserved, and now I can go live however I please. Isn't this what many people are doing? Even many people who claim to be Christians are living this way, but it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1. Second Peter 1, verse 10 through 11 says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Here he's talking to Christians, to the church. Be diligent to make certain his calling and choosing of you. And how do we make certain those things? He tells us, as long as you practice these things. Well, what are the things that we must practice? He tells us in verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. It's the godliness. It's the virtues. It's the fruits of the Spirit. These are the things that we need to be examining that will make our calling and election sure. It will give us confidence. And then there will be graciously abided for us entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord. It also says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. He's telling them you need to test yourself. You need to prove yourself. Look at your life. If Jesus Christ is in you, is it possible that there will be no fruit in your life? Is it possible for someone to have the spirit of Jesus Christ within them and for it not to produce the fruit of the Spirit? It is absolutely impossible. 
And how often should we do this? For the rest of our life, all of our life, we should be testing ourselves, testing one another, helping one another in these things. We should do it continually with honesty. Honesty, right? Not dishonesty, but with honesty and truthfulness. But again, very few take the admonitions of Scripture seriously. Most people, they don't want to think about it. They do not want to entertain any idea that they might be a false convert. And in especially the Baptist churches, they are very quick to tell a person that once you're saved, you're always saved. And you can never lose your salvation, which is true if you are a true possessor of it. But not if you're a false convert. Not if you have false faith. But they give it to everyone. As long as you come up here and repeat these words after me, then you're going to heaven for sure. And this is the people who don't want to think about it. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to consider it at all. And if you ask them or you bring it up, they get upset about it. Why are you causing me to doubt my salvation? Why are you questioning me? Why are you telling me to examine my fruit? Why can't you tell me about the love of God, the grace of God? Why are you always talking about sin and judgment? Why are you talking about faith without works? Even one man told me once, every time I come here, I leave thinking I'm not a Christian. Well, that's good. If you don't have any evidence, if you don't have any evidence, but he was saying it in the sense of leave me alone. Leave me alone. Let me be. I don't have anything to worry about. Me and God, we got everything worked out. And I know that I know that I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven, even though I'm a drunkard. Right, Even though I'm a fornicator, even though I've been married and divorced 10 times, even though I never go to church, I never read my Bible, I don't have any desire to be with the people of God, I know that I'm going to heaven because, after all, nobody's perfect. Right, No one's perfect. We all sin. And it's all about the grace of God. This is the way people are. This is how they think. This is how they speak. They will rashly and irrationally guarantee their own salvation. But what use is this? Right? What advantage does this way of thinking provide? How does it help the reality of the situation? If in reality, right, if in the sight of God you are a wicked man, and this wickedness is manifested in that you are continually wandering from God's commandments, if in reality you are under the judgment of God, then how does convincing yourself that you're not, how does that help the situation? How does believing a lie help the reality at all? It doesn't do any good. That's why the prophet says their deceitfulness is useless. Deceit is useless. What value is there in a lie? If I have brain cancer, but I convince myself that I just have a headache, is that going to help me at all with the reality of the situation? Don't I have to be honest about my situation, about my condition, so that I can then go and get whatever treatments are available to try to remedy it, to try to help it, to try to fight against it? But if I just say, well, I don't want to think about it. I just think I have a headache. I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't want them to look at me. I don't want them to do any scans or anything. And this is what I'm going to believe because I don't want to deal with the reality that doesn't help the situation at all. And how much more for spiritual things? when we're talking about eternal destiny that is on the line, eternal life or eternal damnation. It doesn't do any good. 
their deceitfulness is useless. Lies of the devil have no value, no benefit, but they always bring about ruin and destruction. We know this from Genesis chapter 3. They believed a lie from the devil, and what happened? It plunged the whole world into sin and death. Well, the prophet David, he doesn't want to live a lie. He wants to live in the truth. He sees the outcome of the wicked, and he doesn't want to be like them. He does not want their eternal destiny. So he is constantly contrasting his own life with their life. Not in pride, but according to the grace of God. According to the grace of God, he has become a righteous man. And this righteousness is manifested in that he doesn't wander from God's commandments. He loves the testimonies of God, but they hate God's testimonies and they wander from his commandments. And in this contrast, it becomes clear that he is not like wicked men. He clearly perceives in his own life a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. It says so in Malachi 3, 16 to 18. Once more, once more, you will see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Verse 120. This passage today, talk about contrary to what is commonly taught in the churches. This passage, just like every verse, is nailing something that is contrary to what is actually being taught in the Christian churches today. How about 120? Who is doing this? My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. His body is impacted by his thoughts of God. When he thinks about who God is, his holiness, his righteousness, his wrath, his judgments, when he considers what God will do to the wicked, what God thinks about sin, his body literally trembles for fear of the Lord. And is he sinning in doing this? No, he is not sinning. This is a good thing. He's saying this in truth and righteousness. And he is an example for us to follow. It is good for us to tremble in fear of the Lord. It is good and necessary for us to be afraid of God's righteous judgments. Again, many today would say the opposites. If you told them, my body trembles with fear of God. If you said, I am afraid of God's righteous judgments, they would say, well, you shouldn't think about God like this. Right? This isn't healthy. This isn't a healthy way to think about God. God loves you. God loves you, and, and he wants to comfort you, and, and you shouldn't have these kinds of thoughts about God. But this is to contradict the holy prophet David. His trembling is in righteousness. His fear of God, his being afraid of God, is in righteousness. It is a proper sense. He's doing it in the correct way. There is fear that is good, and this is good fear. There is fear that is evil and sinful, and we ought to reject that fear, but not this fear. This is good fear that is in the righteous. And it does not lead them to flee from the Lord, but rather to strive against sin, to strive and hate sin. The fear of God leads us to flee to God and to repent of our sin and to purify our lives of all ungodliness. The knowledge of sin, the fear of hell, aren't these necessary for salvation? Don't, in order for a person to be saved, don't you have to have the fear of the Lord? And don't you have to have a knowledge of your sin and what God says about it? 
and a knowledge of the judgment of God that's coming because of your sin? These are necessary for salvation. Well, they're also necessary for sanctification. They're not something that we just have at our conversion and now we're done with them, but we have them for the remainder of our life and they need to be cultivated in the Christian life. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians 7 verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Right there, you see it? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God leads us to cleanse ourselves from defilement of flesh and spirit. This is why the fear of God is good. It leads us to cleanse ourselves of sin. Also, verse 15. Verse 15 says, His affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Here, even the messenger of God, Titus, who's preaching the word of God to them, they received him with fear and trembling because of the words that were coming out of his mouth, the very words of God. And that means then, what is Titus preaching against? He's preaching against sin. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have also, just as you have always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Whether I'm with you or whether I'm away, it doesn't matter. You need to work it out with fear and trembling, which means getting rid of sin, cleansing out the sin, and pursuing righteousness. Isn't that what the prophet David is describing throughout Psalm 119? Isn't this the Christian life? Putting off sin and putting on righteousness. This is how it was with the prophet David. His love and fear of God led him to hate sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He loved what was good, and he hated what was evil. And this is how we must be as well. There is a time to hate, and there is a time to love. We must hate sin, and whatever is sinful and evil in us, in others, in the world, we must hate it, we must reject it, and we must love God, and we must love his holy word, and walk in the pathway of righteousness in the fear of the Lord. So then let us be resolute to live in this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, how it teaches us so clearly. Lord, of how it is that we need to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Lord, we need to cleanse ourselves of every sin. Lord, whatever defiles us, Lord, we must reject it. Lord, we must hate it. Lord, beginning in our own life, Lord, we pray that, Lord, we would not be content with our sin. Lord, that we would not compromise. Lord, that we would not excuse it. But Lord, that we would, that we would hate it and want to overcome it. And Lord, cry out to you to deliver us, to strengthen us, Lord, to give us grace. Lord, to go to your word, Lord, as the means, as the sword that we know will 
Lord, take and purify us and remove our sin. So, Father, may we never be content and satisfied, Lord, to live in sin, but rather, may we always be perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Lord, as well, we don't want to be influenced by this world. Lord, we don't want to be influenced by the people of this world. Lord, they are double-minded. They hate your law. They hate your word. Lord, they don't want to live a life that's pleasing to you. So, Lord, how can we be around them and think that their, their sins and, Lord, their evil won't influence us, Lord, to do what is evil in your sight? So, Father, we pray that you would help us to separate ourselves, Lord, to come out from among them, Lord, to be separate from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, Lord, even if it is our family, Lord, even if it is our father or our mother, our wife, our children, Lord, our brothers, our sisters, Lord, our friends, our countrymen, Lord, whoever it is that is tempting us to sin, Lord, may we be willing to cut off that arm, Lord, in order to do what is pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, help us to see how perilous sin truly is. Lord, to see how much you hate it. Lord, how your anger burns against sin. Lord, that we would be in fear of you, that we would be afraid of your judgments, and that this fear would lead us to take sin very, very seriously. And Lord, to do what is necessary, to reject it, Lord, to overcome it, and Lord, to do what is pleasing in your sight. Lord, we know that as long as we are in this life, we will have to contend with the flesh and with sin. And Lord, we pray that you would give us your grace, Lord, to overcome these things. And that, Lord, again, we would never be satisfied with them. That we would not love it, but we would hate it. And Lord, when we do sin against you, we pray that we would quickly repent and that we would from that point forward, seek to live a godly life. So, Lord, may these things be true of us. And, Lord, may we walk in the pathway of righteousness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.